we're going to go a little more in depth about the results of faith in Jesus for Israel. Uh, now, this is going to show the location of the return of Christ. And I've mentioned this a few times, that it's not at the Mount of Olives. Oops, did I lose you? No, I didn't. Okay. That this is not at the Mount of Olives, uh, but at Petra in Basra. Uh, there's one passage that speaks of Jesus Christ in those last days at the Mount of Olives. Uh, and that's the one that most people will grab and say, this is where he's coming back. And there's a good reason they do that. Uh, because where he ascended from was the Mount of Olives, and it says that he'll come back just as he uh, left. Uh, but it's not saying he'll come back in the same place. It's saying in the same manner. Uh, and there are a plethora of verses that speak about his returning to earth, and none of them speak of him returning to the Mount of Olives. He does have a very important appointment at the Mount of Olives, um, but that's not the place of his return. So we turn here to Isaiah 34 to see where he is going to return, where he will first place his feet on earth after his departure. Uh, and Isaiah 34, 1 says, Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the wor world and all that springs from it. Excuse me. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So this shows the context. It is in the destruction of the nations in the last days, those nations who have come up against Israel. And now it gives their location in verse 3. Uh, verse 3. Uh, in the rest of this passage, it gives his location as well as uh, an image of uh, what his return looks like says, so their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with their blood and all the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. Now, Basra is in Edom, and Petra is in Basra. So this is giving the larger location. Isaiah is about to narrow down. It says, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord will, has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen will also fall with them, and young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood, and their dust become greasy with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Now let's look here. Edom is down here below the Dead Sea. Uh, I've got a little circle down at the bottom of the screen, and almost off the map is a little dot that says Basra. Uh, that's where Jesus Christ returns to. Uh, and that whole land down here below Israel is Edom. Uh, in the New Testament, it was called uh, Edomia, uh, but in the Old Testament, it was Edom, a perennial enemy of Israel uh, from the... Uh, 
from the bloodline of uh, Jacob's brother, Esau. Uh, but here, uh, Micah continues, sorry, got ahead of myself. Um, here, Micah 2.12 um, shows this war against Israel's enemies at Christ's return. And it says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like the sheep in Basra, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. Now, this is speaking of the journey uh, from Basra up to Jerusalem as the Lord leads them in victory um, to the place where he will ascend uh, in victory at the Mount of Olives. Uh, so you can get a larger view here. Uh, we had, oh, Rachel's joining us. Uh, <clears throat> all right. Can you guys see my cursor on the screen? No. Yes, okay. um, over here on the right side is Babylon. Uh, that's going to be destroyed a few days before all of this at the very beginning of the um, Antichrist siege. So we see that everything happening is uh, about 1,000, 1,200 miles or so um, away here in Jerusalem. We've got the Dead Sea and down below it, we've got uh, Edom or uh, Edumia, where it says Selah and Mount Hor down here. But notice, um, we're going to look at this a little more later. Notice this uh, valley going down from Jerusalem, from the Dead Sea, all the way down into Aqaba, that uh, Red Sea um, outlet there. We're going to come back to that. But this is in the location of Petra. This is where the Lord will return uh, when he arrives on this earth, probably up higher on the mountains. This is actually a system. Uh, usually we only see this picture or a picture of this uh, place, but this is a cave system. Um, Israel will be hiding out here for three and a half years and God will supernaturally protect them. Um, but this is where Jesus Christ returns um, to be victorious over the enemies of Israel. Uh, so it's a pretty special location. Uh, but what's it going to be like when Jesus Christ returns? Because that's what we get a lot more information about. And in fact, a lot of these passages that speak about what it's going to be like also include the location. So my location section was a little low or a little uh, abbreviated, but that's because most passages that speak of the event of his return also mention the location, which is Basra. Uh, so here in Isaiah 63, it says, who is the one who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, this is interesting because this is Isaiah seeing in a prophetic vision, the Lord who returns at Edom and is coming from Edom with his uh, clothes stained with blood. Uh, he is coming from a battle in Edom up towards Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? 
We've seen that language before in Revelation 14, the winepress of God that Jesus will tread. But I want to pull out three things about Jesus Christ's return and um, the manner in which he will defend Israel. The first one is, although he does not come on his own, he does fight alone. And this is important because no one needs to help him. We're going to see how easily he defeats the Antichrist's armies. Um, we don't fight for him. He fights for us. Uh, we follow him because he is mighty and worthy uh, to save. So Jesus will fight for Israel. Uh, I included that verse again. Isaiah 63 verse 3 says, and this is the words of Jesus Christ, um, or the angel of the Lord, speaking to Isaiah, and he says, I have trodden the wine press, or the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. These are the words of Jesus Christ before his incarnation. It says, I looked and there was no one to help me, and I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is the day of the wrath of the Lord. Um, that is what the uh, battle of Armageddon is better, uh, is better described as, because the battle doesn't actually take place in Armageddon. But even in Revelation, we are given this title, uh, the, uh, the war of, the, or not the war, the uh, wrath of God Almighty. Another thing to point out is he does return in glory, just as he said he would. In Matthew 24, 30, we see uh, it says, and then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great authority. So he is coming just as he promised. Acts 1, 9 um, is where we find this promise. It says, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so he does return in the same way, uh, shrouded in glory. Matthew 16, 27 also indicates that although he is going to fight alone, um, he is not coming back alone. It says, for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. And as well, the prophecy of Enoch recorded for us in Jude 14 says, it was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation of Adam prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord 
came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is speaking of the final judgment uh, from a prophet even before the flood. And notice he is coming with many thousands of his holy ones. This is likely not speaking of angels, but of the saints. Uh, and we're going to see another passage coming up here in a second uh, about that, where it seems to identify it more specifically as even the church saints. That will be us coming together with him. So all of us, whether we have died uh, at his coming or not, are going to return with him at Basra. So uh, one way or another, we've got a one-way ticket to Basra at his uh, return to earth, and we will come behind him, not fighting with him, uh, but with him fighting in front of us on behalf of Israel. But he also comes at a time of war. Um, he is going uh, to enter while a war is already raging. Chat here. I finally got. Yes, um, you do finally get to go to the Middle East and not worry about dying. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, all right. Here in Revelation 19, uh, we see John's uh, vision of Christ's return. And this is when we see that he is coming with his saints and who his saints are um, is the church saints. We see uh, for the first time, I believe, since chapter five of Revelation, um, the church is back in view here. Uh, so chapter 19, verse 11 of Revelation says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, uh, we have some context here from the Old Testament that this uh, blood that his robe is dipped in is not his own. Uh, Yes, he is the one who shed his blood for us, um, but we have to interpret these verses by the Old Testament verses about the same event. His um, blood-dipped robe speaks of his judgment, not his salvation here. Now he is coming uh, for judgment. It says, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, and that is us. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's uh, Psalm 2 language. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lord. All right. So after his return... Um, he will wage war with the enemies of Israel all around and fight them all the way up to Jerusalem. Uh, so we start here with 2 Thessalonians 2.8, uh, and we see the facility with which he is going to, uh, to conquer the Antichrist, the ruler of the world at the time of his return. 
Um, so 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord, in accord with the activities of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. So we see the manner in which he will be slain and that is with the breath uh, of the Lord's mouth but we get a much more graphic picture of his execution in Habakkuk chapter three. Habakkuk chapter three is another chapter that I'm going to tell you to uh, go and read for yourself because it's fascinating. Um, Habakkuk three is the um, battle of the Lord when he returns, uh, but it's 19 verses and a little too much for us to go through here in any reasonable amount of time. So I'm saying, go read it on your own, knowing the context, you'll get it. Uh, but here is the graphic picture of Jesus Christ uh, slaying the Antichrist, the false Christ. It says, in indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil, of the evil, to lay him open from thigh to neck. So with the word of the, uh, with Christ, the word of Christ's mouth, um, the Antichrist is going to be divided uh, from his neck all the way down to his groin. Pretty graphic. Uh, Isaiah 14 is a chapter where we usually go uh, to discuss Satan's fall, his pride, the reason why uh, his pride um, blinded him and so he fell. Um, but the verses that bookend this speak of the Antichrist. Uh, so verses 3 through 11 and then verses 16 through 21 all speak of uh, Satan's agent, the Antichrist. And the context of this chapter here is after the uh, death of the false Christ. Uh, first, the false Christ's spirit uh, arriving in hell. That's going to be verses 3 through 11. And then afterwards is the response of the earth to his dead body uh, on the earth after the Lord kills him. So Isaiah 14, verse 3, uh, say, or uh, the Antichrist's arrival in hell. Uh, so it says, and it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved. This is speaking to Israel that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the people in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress tree rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when, he, when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. 
you have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. So even the greatest leader of earth, the Antichrist himself, will be brought down as low as every other king of earth who has not put his hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, but Isaiah 14, verse 16, after it has a brief parenthesis um, speaking about Satan, the power, the demonic power behind the Antichrist, uh, here it comes back um, to the view of the Antichrist, but from a different perspective. It says, those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home. All the earth of, or all the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his tomb, but you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, so he won't be buried, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the faces of the world with cities. All right, so that is the... Uh, defeat of the false Christ by Jesus Christ uh, when he returns to this earth. And what will proceed from there is a war that goes from Petra all the way up to Jerusalem, waged by the Lord. Uh, but again, he will conquer them with nothing but the breath of his uh, mouth. In Revelation 14, 19 through 20, we see this uh, four we see a foreview of this uh, as we prepared for the section of Armageddon in Revelation. It says, so the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came up from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now, usually... Um, because people place this in uh, the valley of Megiddo, they recognize that Megiddo is about um, 200 miles square. Uh, but that's a forced interpretation that it would stay in Megiddo since they've only staged themselves there and then went to war elsewhere. Uh, a better interpretation of what's going on here is that this blood is following that canyon system down to the sea which is a distance of 200 miles from Jerusalem um, down to the uh, eastern, uh, eastern side of the Arabian Peninsula there, or the, uh, the uh, peninsula of Sinai there. So down where it says Ezion Geber Elath, uh, it would drain into the ocean uh, all the way from this, the top of this red arrow. So from the white arrow north, that's where Jesus is going to lead his uh, people from Petra back to Jerusalem. And the river of blood uh, from his conquering 
will drain out into the sea through that canyon system. And he will defeat all of these armies in Joel 3, uh, verse 11, it says, hasten and come all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is uh, north of Israel or of Jerusalem. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And this is why it's important that he will go to the Mount of Olives. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. When you will know that, or then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And so here is the victorious ascent of Jesus Christ, where he ascends the Mount of Olives um, so that he can judge the nations. And from here will take place uh, the sheep and goat judgment that we'll get to later. Uh, but this is that one prophecy which often leads people to believe that he will return to the Mount of Olives. Um, he will go to the Mount of Olives after his return, but he will not ascend from or descend from heaven onto the Mount of Olives. He will descend on Petra. But Zechariah 14.4 says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. So here is the valley uh, or the uh, Mount of Olives. So that is where he is going to stand to judge the nations of the earth after his victorious conquering of the Antichrist's armies. And this is in conjunction uh, with the seventh bowl that we saw at the end of chapter 16. And that's really why we took two weeks to go and look at the events of Armageddon. Uh, because like I said last week, John doesn't record it because it's incredibly redundant because it's the content of so much Old Testament prophecy. We don't need more prophecies about it. Uh, we should just be reading our Old Testaments. Uh, but here in Matthew 24, 29, uh, we see that this end comes um, in this fashion. It says, immediately after the tribulation. So this does end the tribulation period. Um, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So that is a, uh, a proleptic view forward prophetically to the seventh bowl judgment, the end of the tribulation, which we also saw in Revelation 16, 17 through 21. It says the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth 
so great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts. So we have two parts, north and south on the Mount of Olives. There will be another division, but it's not at the Mount of Olives. And the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, because its plague was extremely severe. And that is the beginning, then, of the 75 days of cleansing the earth um, before he establishes his kingdom. But that is the end of the reign of uh, enemy powers, enemies of God, uh, reigning on this earth. So that is Revelation chapter 16, uh, what happens between uh, the sixth and seventh bowl um, is Armageddon. And 17 through 18 is going to give us more detail about stage two of Armageddon, the destruction of Babylon. And then 19 is going to give us uh, more information about stages six through eight. Uh, so that's what we have to look forward to in the uh, coming month and a half, two months. Uh, and then we will look at the millennial kingdom that Jesus Christ will rule over this earth from the throne of David. And then he will hand over the kingdom to God and their thrones will merge and they will rule over the universe together for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So that is uh, the rest of Armageddon. Any questions? Wow, thank you. Oh, Cliff has really something. See one coming here. Okay. In Isaiah 14, 21, sons are mentioned. Would you say this is the biblical children, i.e. like Haman's 10 sons, Esther, or people who follow after him? Uh, I would say this is more like people who come after um, him in the same manner as him, um, just like we are sons of God. Um, his followers are sons of his destruction. I would agree Daniel 1137 uh, would indicate that he is probably not going to be a father of any sort uh, physically. <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I, don't, I don't hold to the uh, idea that he will be gay like some people say. <laughs> uh, I'm a little partial to the Nephilim theory uh, that he will be the product of a, uh, of a satanic union. Are you talking about the Antichrist? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure he will be 100% human. In other words, I think he'll take after um, the Nephilim before the flood. Oh, interesting. Yeah. How does it get to be that way? Satan. I, I think he will be literal offspring of Satan, which is how he's able to be regenerated um, at the midpoint of the tribulation. What does Chuck Missler think said Nephilim? It's a pretty common, um, it's a pretty common interpretation. People don't talk about it much, just like they don't talk about the Nephilim before the flood very much, uh, because science today says that's impossible because science doesn't have a purview on supernatural. Yeah. Uh, but the Antichrist will be a supernatural being. There's no getting around that. Whether or not he's born a supernatural being or not a demonic but supernatural being is another uh, question.
but I think he'll at least be of questionable paternity. And that might be why his nationality is not given in scripture. Okay. Although if his nationality is given, um, it's a Syrian, um, but it would be, it's not directly applied to him. Uh, the Assyrian is in contexts in Isaiah where it's actually not speaking directly of the Antichrist, but it'll merge into talking about the last world ruler. And at that point, it stops using the term Assyrian. And I think that's, uh, that's actually evidence against him being Assyrian. But I could be wrong. Um, and it could be an allusion to his nationality. A lot of people think that he was going to come from a European nation, descend from. Yeah, and that comes from uh, the final world empire being a Roman empire, a reborn Roman empire. Uh, I don't think it necessarily has to have its ruler be a European. Um, I think it just has to be a European power. Um, I, don't, I don't remember where it was, but you had mentioned you were talking about the false prophet or the Antichrist or whatever, and there was some reference to um, not wearing a hairy robe. Was that a oh. reference to Esau? <laughs> uh, that's a reference to prophets. Um, the prophetic office was one of humility. Um, like we've got Elijah and Elisha um, who wore uh, hairy robes, who ate uh, locust in the desert. Um, basically, it's saying one of low off or high office to the Lord, but low office in the world. Um, and that's why in the Gospels, it says, I think it's in Mark, uh, where it says that John the Baptist came wearing um, hairy robes because it was showing that he is a prophet in line with the Old Testament prophets. Um, and that's what these last day false prophets are going to do. They're going to come claiming to be um, the, the fulfillment of the Micah and Isaiah passages promising one who will point to the coming Messiah. Camel's hair. Thank you. Uh, Cliff just posted the verse. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and was eating locust and wild honey. Mark 1, 6. So fur rather than sackcloth or something like that. Right, right. And sackcloth was uh, a sign of mourning. Uh, so it's a uh, false humility in that passage, I think, that it was used to deceive Israel, that they would come in the form of an Old Testament prophet, claiming to be Old Testament prophets, pointing towards a Messiah, but they would be pointing towards the Antichrist. So it's a deception um, that was in uh, Zechariah 13, the false prophets in Israel in the last days. Kelly, you're quiet tonight. I'm just absorbing it all. <laughs> well, we get to uh, recapitulate a bit on Babylon uh, in the next couple of weeks at least three weeks on Babylon. It's just so interesting. I, I just cannot stop thinking about the times we live in and everything that's happening now and oh, yes. just what's, what's coming. It's just amazing. Oh, I, I have two, so fast. Two, two observations. I'm sitting here. I have my Bible that has a bunch of 
-huh. maps. So I've been trying to look at what you're saying, but then I, I pulled back and I got this gigantic, like the whole region. Yeah. And the tiny, tiny, tiny little area <laughs> that is actually causing all this strife and all of this. Um, it's just amazing to me. Amazing. <laughs> and seeing where Petra and Jordan is so far away from like Jerusalem. Yeah. And that's all going to be, it just, I don't know. It, it's, um, like, I can't remember exactly how far it is. It's less than 100 miles. Well, that's 100 miles, though. I mean, that's a long way. It's like you're, on, you yeah. know, if you're, if you're looking at it, but it is a tiny piece of well, the world. Not going to be on foot. They're going to be on horseback. I know, but still, it's, it's, it's not a easy, yeah. you know, five block radius kind of thing. It's yeah. a very large area to have that massive of a battle. Yeah. And then I'm seeing where how far Petra is from from, you know, like the where people are probably living in Israel mm -hmm. and they have to make it to Petra to hide out. Yeah. That's a pretty long way. So, I mean, it's pretty far away from there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, just all the stuff I'm looking at and thinking, trying to put it into perspective. Um, and then the other thing, just the, the false prophet that you're talking about and the passages that you're pulling out, I almost kind of want to do a little mini study just on the false prophets. Yeah, that would be a fun study. Yeah, because it's like, huh, shouldn't we know a little bit more of those red flags that when they come well, up, maybe. And that's going to be something like we will have false prophets. John. Um, in first John speaks of the false prophets. I think it's John 2, 28 to 32 uh, or so. It speaks of the false prophets that are already here and they're going to be here the whole time of the church. But what he's what his argument is is this is going to be a consistent thing. Um, it's going to be in cycles, it's going to fluctuate, but they're always going to be here during the church. It's once yeah. the church is removed, it's going to be exponential growth in false prophets. Uh, and that's what Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24. Uh, let me open that passage up here. Uh, and in fact, John 1 is where we get the name Antichrist uh, from. It's the only place where that name is used. Uh, and it's actually speaking of the false prophets during the church age. Um, that's why I use the term false Christ, uh, because I also like anti um can mean in place of, but it's not as clear a designation. Um, he's against Christ, but he is also trying to take the place of Christ. So when I use the term false Christ, that's the, uh, the aspect of it that I'm trying to bring out is that he has come claiming to be a Christ, uh, a Messiah figure, uh, but he does not. So here in uh, Matthew 24, uh, which is the Olivet Discourse, uh, which you'll remember was Jesus Christ standing on the Mount of Olives, speaking of his return in victory, where he would come up the Mount of Olives. Keep that in That's uh... All right. Okay. <clears throat> so in Matthew 24, verse 23, um, he says, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. 
um, behold, I have told you in advance. So that's Jesus warning that the last days, that special period of world history, the last seven years, is going to be particularly defined by false prophets. Uh, prophets. Uh, John's argument in 1 John 2, 20. Now he's speaking mainly to Israel at that point, right? Yes, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the future of Israel. Um, at this point, he does not have the church in view. And that's why he skips uh, basically any reference to what the church will see in the last days. Uh, if we want to know what the church is going to witness in the last days, we primarily go to the epistles because Jesus did teach uh, the apostles about to the church and the church's period. Um, but most of what's written in the Gospels is actually more to do with Israel and their program. Uh, the epistles are particularly information which Jesus gave to his disciples in the last year and a half, two years of his ministry after Israel had rejected um, him. In fact, uh, it's really interesting to see just how much of his ministry is recorded before his rejection. Uh, versus how much is recorded afterwards. Uh, we have almost like two years of near silence from Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. We get some prophetic healings uh, where he is healing not on the basis of trying to show his messiahship, but on the basis of uh, compassion towards those who already believe in him. He's not trying to demonstrate that he's someone to believe in. Um, the last part of his ministry is for teaching the apostles. Uh, and then the end of his ministry is for bringing salvation to the world uh, by his sacrificial death on the cross. Uh, Israel probably rejected him in his first year of ministry. Uh, from that point forward, he taught in parables. So uh, if it's not a parable, it's not happening in uh, after his rejection. Uh, long and short of it. Uh, but in John 2, uh, it's not as far through the chapter as I thought it was. In fact, let me search the word Antichrist. John 2, 18 to 22, not 28 to 32. Um, children, it is the last hour, John says, and he's writing in about 80, uh, 80, no, he's writing in about 90 AD here. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So this is his assessment of the church age. They were promised that false prophets were coming. Uh, now he's probably mentioning what Jesus taught them in the last part of his earthly ministry, but I think he's also referring more likely to what Peter was talking about um, on the coast of Miletus. Uh, where he said that many uh, ravenous wolves are entering into the flock, um, leading many astray. He's talking about the false teachers in the church that are going to uh, lead many astray. This, again, was another parable uh, by Jesus Christ in Matthew 13. Um, the second parable, which was uh, that there would be tares sown among the wheat. The wheat is... Uh, uh, are the believers and the tares are the unbelievers that are sown um, by someone else. It says a, an enemy sows those. Those are the uh, 
those receiving false doctrine and so not coming to a knowledge of saving faith. Uh, but here John continues, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remi remained with us. They went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Now this is um, John sounding like he's talking in circles, which is basically his literary form. Um, he, he's tying a nice tight knot with words here uh, is what he's doing that requires a bit of wrapping. But he says that these uh, false Christs, they actually went out from this apostolic group of people, um, but they went out and didn't stay with them. And that showed that they were actually teaching a false gospel, a false truth uh, that is not a saving gospel. And they would have stayed with the apostles and taught that original message, because this is what um, Jude speaks about in his first few verses when verse three it says while i was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation i felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints so what john is saying is these antichrists they come from within the church they came from us but they're not staying with us doctrinally they're departing from the doctrine of the faith once given to all the saints and that's what shows you that they are false uh, prophets, false, uh, false Christs. Thank you, Cliff. Just uh, sent the verse headings, 1 John 2, 18 through 23. Uh, so this, it's speaking of two different uh, events of false prophets. One is uh, for Israel in the last days, where they're going to be pointing towards false messiahs. Um, what John is talking about, um, he actually loops back uh, in chapter five, uh, and defines again who the antichrists are. Yeah, who is the liar, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist, the one who denies the father and the son. Whoever denies the son does not have the father. The one who confesses the son has the father also. Uh, so, but mom, you're, you're, you are, uh, it, it's not a question that hasn't been asked before, uh, but it's one of those places where we need to rightly divide the word of truth, uh, where we have to make a dispensational distinction. I was recently talking to a guy on the internet who was uh, uh, basically rebuking me for teaching First John because First John is in his theological system, which is greatly flawed. Um, he believes that it is not for the church but it is for the remnant of Israel in the last days. Uh, because of this identification of um, antichrists, uh, he says that these are not two groups of uh, false prophets, one to the church that is going to be a constant through the whole church, and a different set of false uh, prophets in the last days. Uh, he thinks Jesus and John are both speaking about the same group of false prophets in the last days. So he... Uh, removes one of the most important books in the New Testament canon for the church um, because of his false theological presupposition there. Um, so we want to guard ourselves against that and recognize that by, the Bible makes distinctions for a purpose uh, and details are important. Uh, that's kind of the idea again of every jot and tittle. Uh, that being said, uh, 
Well, uh, a good principle is similarity doesn't make sameness uh, in the Bible. Just like our salvation through Jesus Christ is similar to that of Israel's, but that doesn't mean that we are the new Israel. Um, kind of the same idea there. Um, but yes, no, that's, that's an excellent observation, I guess, not a question that you made. Yeah, sorry. It got me off on a tangent because I've been thinking about it since I talked to that guy. <laughs> All right. Any other questions? I have one, Dane. Go for it. Um, you know, when Jesus is talking about demon possession and mm -hmm. the house being swept clean and all that. Um, I always thought that that was a, an example for us of demon possession. Is it, is it just an example of what you were talking about? It might um, be doing double duty. Um, its primary context is speaking of Israel being prepared for their Messiah, rejecting him. And so they're going to receive a Messiah and all kinds of false prophets, essentially. But often what Jesus does is he takes a principle commonly known to us um, about the world we live in. Um, not necessarily us in the 21st century, but Israel, who had a better understanding of demon possession. Uh, so he is basically relating something that they know to their situation that they're in now, uh, spiritually. So I think, in fact, I, I do go to this verse uh, to talk about demon possession but I do use it as a secondary evidence um, because uh, that's not its primary context. Uh, oh, I had um, another place where that happens is uh, Romans 7, where Paul is talking about marriage and where he's talking about how you have, uh, while you are alive, you are bound to that person that you married. Well, that's a principle that we understand, but we actually aren't being taught that truth in Romans 7. That's being used as the comparison of that's the truth we know. And from that, we look at the law and we see that we are married to the law so long as we are alive. But when we are dead in Christ, we are now freed from the law of Moses and uh, are alive to the law of Christ. So the actual context of that isn't teaching something about marriage but applying something that we know about marriage to a truth that we don't understand as well as marriage. Um, so I think that's kind of the same thing that Jesus is doing in Matthew 12 with the demon possession passage. So uh, you are, I would say you are safe to use that uh, to understand a truth, but um, it's like looking through the window, not at the window uh, to see the understanding of Israel about demon possession in that day. Uh, so long story short, yes, uh, there's no problem in looking at that as a demon possession passage. Uh, it would be probably misleading of Jesus to use that passage talking about demon possession if that's not actually how it works. Yeah, okay, that, yeah, thank you for that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Always love these questions. You guys get my head working. <laughs> All right. Well, we're almost about 8.30. So 
Um, I'm gonna call it on the questions and I look forward to seeing y'all again in two weeks. Uh, we are taking two weeks off because I'm gonna be um, in Texas for a conference. So um, hopefully I'll have lots of new insights from that I can share with y'all. That's nice of you to line that up when we can't, Dan and I can't be there next week. Nice. Oh, good. They sold their house. Oh, yeah, our house, our house, I think we have about two weeks to get out. Okay. <laughs> Are you moving to a free state? <laughs> that's our plan. Okay. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. <laughs> well, we're going to miss you. Oh, man. Well, we'll just be zooming in. Yay. Because, uh, yeah, we, we want to keep our Bible studies going and all of our connections. So Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yay. I will let me pray for us to close and uh, and then we'll say good night and see you all in two weeks. All right, dear Lord, uh, we thank you for prophecy. Uh, we know that sometimes uh, it can get a little grisly, but we're looking not at our future, but someone else's future when we see those uh, those events. And so this is given to us for our encouragement. For our hope that uh, we are uh, seated with you in the heavenlies and we are secure in you. We know that our futures are secure. Our salvation is sure um, because your blood has uh, bought all of that on our behalf. And by nothing but faith alone, we have acquired uh, all of the riches of glory together with you. So we thank you that uh, we get to look at these prophetic uh, promises from a different perspective, one of hope uh, and one of uh, comfort. We thank you for that comfort that you've given us. It's especially important for us in these um, seemingly uh, waning days of earth. We pray for our Christian brothers in Ukraine. Uh, we pray that uh, those who um, are able can get out. Uh, we pray for your protection on that country. Um, and we pray that you would uh, hold back Russia uh, from their advances into that country uh, if it's not in your will that they uh, be acting like this on the world stage. You know, when Russia starts to lift its head, we also look up uh, because we have the uh, your prophetic word to see that Russia will be a player at the beginning of, uh, of that pivotal change in world history. So uh, calm our hearts, keep our, our minds and, uh, and studies on your word and, on, uh, and not on other things so that we can keep that sure word of prophecy as our uh, as our guide and our meter against which we uh, we measure world events. Help us not to be uh, newspaper exegetes, uh, but nice, good, biblical exegetes. Uh, we pray all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. All right. See you all in a few weeks. Thank you, Dan. Stay safe, Dane. Yeah. Bye.